On April 14, 1969, President Richard Nixon outlined his domestic program to Congress. He called for federal-state revenue sharing, an increase in Social Security, partial tax reform, and improvement programs for airways and mass transit. His stated priorities were an end to the war in Vietnam and stemming inflation. At the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, in a rare tie, Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn were each honored with the Oscar for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Streisand won for Funny Girl and Hepburn for A Lion in Winter. Cliff Robertson won the Oscar for Best Actor for Charlie. Jack Albertson and Ruth Gordon were honored as Best Supporting Actor and Actress. Mel Brooks won the Oscar for Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen for the producers. Oliver won the Oscar for Best Picture and its director, Carol Reed, won the Oscar for Best Director. The 41st Academy Awards ceremony was the first without a host since 1939 and the first to be held at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. The New York Knicks beat the Boston Celtics 112-104 at Madison Square Garden to stay alive in the NBA Eastern Division Championship Series. The Celtics lost despite 29 points from John Havlicek and 25 from Bill Russell, but still led the series three games to two. And in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, an overflow crowd of 29,184 fans packed Little Jerry Park for the first Major League Baseball game ever outside the United States. The Montreal Expos defeated the St. Louis Cardinals 8-7, breaking a 7-7 tie in the seventh inning on a double by Coco LeBoy and a single by winning pitcher Dan McGinn. Jerry Park is one of the 22 ballparks described by the late Lawrence S. Ritter in his book, Lost Ballparks. Where have you gone, Lost Ballparks? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Some books are like little portable museums. You can look at the pictures and read the captions. Other text provides more information. And when you're done, hopefully you've had an entertaining and educational experience. Lost Ballparks by Lawrence Ritter is such a book. It's one of my favorite books. Lawrence S. Ritter is best known for The Glory of Their Times, published in 1966, one of the most highly regarded baseball books of all time. It has been written that the book virtually created the oral history book industry. Ritter was a professor of finance at New York University. Ritter received the Henry Chadwick Award from the Society for American Baseball Research, SABRE, in its first class, 2010. The award honors great researchers for helping to make baseball the game that links America's present with its past. The Glory of Their Times was first reviewed in the Cleveland newspaper The Plain Dealer on Sunday, October 2, 1966, 
in the stage and screen section. The article was written by Don Robertson. Robertson wrote, It's more than a baseball book, much more. It is social history. It is nostalgia. It is a cry from the heart. It is a threnody to an America most of us never knew. It calls up such things as courage and commitment, things that have been lost in the rush and clamor of history. I'll have more to say about Don Robertson later in the program. Lost Ballparks, published about 25 years after the glory of their times, has not achieved the fame of the earlier book. One of the reasons that Lost Ballparks is one of my favorite books is that it includes major league and minor league parks. Minor league parks have as much rich history as the major league parks. One of the reasons is the travel element. Every one of the 22 ballpark sites in Lost Ballparks can be visited today. Some of them have been completely built over, like the apartments where Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds once stood. If you stand near the plaque that marks the approximate spot of home plate in the Polo Grounds, you'll be standing where Bobby Thompson stood the day he hit the shot heard round the world, while Willie Mays waited on deck. It's also the ground of the pitch that killed, where Ray Chapman of the Cleveland Indians was hit by a pitch from Carl Mays that resulted in Chapman's death. The 22 ballpark sites in Lost Ballparks are in nine different of the United States, plus Washington, D.C., and Quebec, Canada. They are in 18 different cities. Minor league parks in Lost Ballparks include Offerman Stadium in Buffalo and Nicolette Park in Minneapolis, both remembered with historic plaques. Others that hosted major and minor league baseball include Wrigley Field in Los Angeles and Seals Stadium in San Francisco. Three of the lost ballpark sites, Forbes Field, Braves Field, and Griffith Stadium, are now part of college campuses. Forbes is on the University of Pittsburgh campus, Braves is on the campus of Boston University, and Griffith at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Comiskey Park in Chicago and Memorial Stadium in Baltimore were the most recent of Ritter's lost ballparks to host Major League Baseball. The White Sox moved into a new park next door in 1991. The Orioles moved to Oriole Park at Camden Yards near Baltimore's Inner Harbor in 1992. Each chapter of lost ballparks contains a description of the location Most chapters contain a chronological list, open to debate, of the 10 most memorable moments at each park. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's almost 30 years since Ritter wrote Lost Ballparks. In his introduction, he wrote about the atmosphere in the ballpark. He wrote, The atmosphere inside the ballpark has also changed greatly over time, becoming, like the ballparks themselves, more mass-produced and less diversified. Years ago, the dominant sounds during pre-game batting and fielding practice, as well as during the game itself, were the crack of the bat hitting the ball, the thud of the ball into the well-worn leather glove, the voices of players bantering with or harassing one another, and the cries of vendors mingling with the shouts of fans. Nowadays, what you hear is loud, non-stop recorded music blaring from the loudspeaker system, 
Normal, relaxed conversation during and between innings is about as feasible as at a heavy metal rock concert or a birthday party for hyperactive five-year-olds. Between the recorded music, the organist, the electronic scoreboard telling fans when to cheer, charge, winning numbers flashed on the scoreboard between innings, team mascots like the San Diego Chicken, cavorting on the field and in the stands, and cartoon characters racing across the Diamond Vision scoreboard screen, today's fans, like it or not, are caught up in the midst of a non-stop multimedia three-ring circus. He wrote how many people preferred the old ballparks and their eccentricities, a fact borne out by the retro park movement that began at about the time Lost Ballparks was published. When Lost Ballparks was first published in 1992, Fenway Park and Wrigley Field were still in use, as they are today. So were a generation of ballparks that came after the classics of the early and mid-20th century. Here's a trivia question. How many other MLB parks in use in 1991 are still in use for Major League Baseball today? The answer is not many. The more specific answer is Dodger Stadium, opened in 1962, Anaheim Stadium, now Angel Stadium of Anaheim, opened in 1966, Oakland Coliseum, now Ring Central Coliseum, 1966, Royal Stadium, now Kauffman Stadium, 1973, Skydome, now Rogers Center, 1989, and Florida Suncoast Dome, now Tropicana Field. 1990. Since the publication of Lost Ballparks, the venues of Major League Baseball have changed by more than half. Gone are all the cookie-cutter, multi-purpose stadiums opened in the 1960s. Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, Bush Memorial Stadium in St. Louis, RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. survives, but it is scheduled to be demolished in 2022. Also gone are three other ballparks opened in the 1960s, Candlestick Park in San Francisco, Shea Stadium in Queens, New York, and most recently, Jack Murphy Stadium, later known as Qualcomm Stadium, in San Diego. Gone are two of the early domes, the King Dome in Seattle and the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minnesota. For now, the Astrodome in Houston still survives. Gone are more ballparks that dated back to the pre-expansion days of Major League Baseball. Cleveland Municipal Stadium, Tiger Stadium, Milwaukee County Stadium, and the original Yankee Stadium. In more recent years, another wave of even more modern Major League Baseball venues has begun, with new parks for the Miami Marlins, Atlanta Braves, and Texas Rangers. Clearly, old ballparks make for good stories. Entire books are devoted to some of the lost ballparks. McFarland has published League Park, the Polo Grounds, Ebbets Field, Forbes Field, and Old Comiskey Park. Others include To Everything a Season, about Scheib Park, and Cincinnati's Crosley Field. Ballparks, old and new, also make for a good road trip. Hold that thought and we'll begin the Ritter's Lost Ballparks virtual road trip 
after a short break. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. I'm not alone in planning and taking trips to multiple major league baseball parks as well as minor league and college parks. I took a blank map of the United States, plotted out the cities of Ritter's Lost Ballparks, plus the two in Canada, and found they can be visited in a nice oval. For my purposes, I'm starting this virtual trip in Cleveland, at Cleveland's League Park, but it can be started at any of the 18 cities in Lost Ballparks. Follow the route, and you'll end up right where you started. Cleveland's League Park dates back to May 1, 1891. Located at the corner of what's now East 66th Street and Lexington Avenue in Cleveland's Huff neighborhood, it was originally a wooden park. Before the 1910 season, it was rebuilt and modernized in steel and concrete. It never had lighting for night baseball. It was the original home of the Cleveland Indians and also home to the Cleveland Buckeyes of the Negro Leagues. The right field wall was right up against Lexington Avenue. Babe Ruth hit his 500th home run out there on August 11, 1929. If a fan got a baseball hit out of League Park, he or she could turn it in in exchange for free admission into the park. When Lawrence Ritter wrote Lost Ballparks, League Park was a pretty much neglected piece of ground on the east side of Cleveland, almost entirely demolished in the 1950s and 1960s. In his book... Ritter quoted Cleveland author Peter Jettick, who wrote, Today, any kid can go out to League Park and hit a few baseballs where Ruth, Cobb, Speaker, and Josh Gibson once roamed, but they can't turn one in to watch them play. In the early 2000s, political will and improved conditions in the Huff neighborhood led to long overdue financing to fix up League Park. Today, it's a baseball gem, home to the Baseball Heritage Museum, and kids can still play on the field with the exact same dimensions as when the Indians and the Buckeyes played there. If not for the 1920 World Series and Bill Wamsgan's unassisted triple play in the fifth game of that series, it might be best known for an exhibition game on July 6, 1936. On that date, Bob Feller made his debut for the Indians by pitching three innings against the St. Louis Cardinals and recording eight of nine outs on strikeouts. During a time when that did not happen, Bob Feller went on to become the greatest pitcher in Cleveland Indians history. League Park is just a half mile north of U.S. Route 20. In Cleveland, it's Euclid Avenue, one of the city's main thoroughfares. 
It may not get the attention of Route 66, but it's equally historic and the subject of the book 20 West. It's America's longest highway, stretching from New England to the Pacific Northwest. For our purposes, it connects Cleveland and Chicago, and the site of Comiskey Park on Chicago's south side. Here's a connection between League Park and Comiskey Park. Bill Veck moved the Indians out of League Park into Cleveland Municipal Stadium after the 1946 season, and his ownership resulted in a world's championship for the Indians in 1948. In March of 1959, a syndicate led by Veck bought the Chicago White Sox. Veck made numerous changes at Comiskey Park, including the exploding scoreboard and a picnic area in left field. The White Sox brought the World Series to Comiskey Park in 1959 for the first time since 1919, but lost the series to the Los Angeles Dodgers. I was fortunate to see a few games at Comiskey Park. It was a beautiful old ballpark. I did not get to see it before the Dan Ryan Expressway opened in 1961. It runs along the east side of the ballpark and I'm sure makes a difference in the experience between what it was before the expressway was constructed and after the expressway was constructed. If you're at the Comiskey Park site, you're in the parking lot of the current park of the Chicago White Sox. It's roughly 412 miles from the Comiskey Park site to the Mall of America, the former site of Metropolitan Stadium and home of the Minnesota Twins from 1961 to 1981. And before that, home to the Minneapolis Millers from 1956 to 1960. If you know your baseball history, you know that the Washington Senators moved to Minnesota after the 1960 season and were replaced with the expansion Washington Senators. The original Senators became the Twins. As a minor league park turned major league park, It was a minimalist place. It was defined by the great Twins teams of the 1960s, including the American League champions of 1965. Ritter wrote that it was built on 164 acres in the middle of a cornfield. The stadium looked like the product of a spoiled child's erector set. It had a crazy quilt combination of triple-decked, double-decked, and single-decked stands, with no roofs over any of them. The stands behind home plate and the infield were triple-decked, those down the right field line to the foul pole, and from the left field foul line to center field were double-decked, while the stands down the left field foul line to the foul pole and standing alone in right field had only a single deck. Initial seating capacity of 40,000 was gradually expanded to 46,000. Plenty of great teams, albeit minor league teams, played at Nicolet Park, two miles south of downtown Minneapolis. It was built in 1896 and renovated multiple times before the Millers moved out after the 1955 season. Demolition began soon after the last game there on September 28, 1955, when a sellout crowd saw the Millers beat the Rochester Red Wings to win the Junior World Series between the champions of the American Association and the International League. Ted Williams played there, so did Willie Mays. On the United States map, there's a big gap between Minneapolis and San Francisco. It's a gap of almost 2,000 miles, using Interstate 90 into Wyoming, 
and then south from Gillette to Rollins to pick up Interstate 80. One option to reach San Francisco from Minneapolis is to drive south down to Ames, Iowa, and take the Lincoln Highway west, mostly on Interstate 80, down into San Francisco. The site of Seal Stadium is about four miles south of downtown San Francisco on the northeastern end of the Mission District. It was bounded by Bryant Street, 16th Street, Alameda Street, and Portrero Street. It was one of the last of Ritter's lost ballparks to be built, opening in 1931, and one of the shortest lived. It was demolished after the 1959 season. It was the first home of the San Francisco Giants. The Giants played there in 1958 and 1959 until Candlestick Park was ready for use in 1960. A marker was placed at the site in 2008. Seal Stadium was originally home of the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. Ritter wrote that there were three clubhouses in the park, one for the Seals, one for the San Francisco Missions, and one for the visitors. The Missions left San Francisco after 1937, went south to Los Angeles, and became the Hollywood Stars. Seal Stadium was a single-decked ballpark with no roof, with a seating capacity of 18,500 until the San Francisco Giants moved in in 1958, and 5,000 seats were added with bleachers in left field. The two biggest names connected with the San Francisco Seals and Seals Stadium are Joe DiMaggio and Lefty O'Doul. Joe DiMaggio played there for three full seasons. In 1933, he hit in 61 straight games, eight years before he set the Major League Baseball record with his 56-game hitting streak for the New York Yankees in 1941. Lefty O'Doul isn't as famous as Joe DiMaggio. Like DiMaggio, he was a great hitter. He won two Major League batting titles. He managed the San Francisco Seals for 17 seasons through 1951 and four other PCL teams through 1957. He made numerous trips to Japan and is recognized for helping to develop baseball in that country. He's the subject of two good biographies, and he's one of the men Ritter interviewed for the glory of their times. There's a small shopping strip near where Seals Stadium was. It was there that I learned the concept of the parking lot walk-off. Don't do it. Instead, head to Los Angeles. You might take Interstate 5. You might take the Pacific Coast Highway, also known as California State Route 1. Approaching Los Angeles from the north, Head to the Grove, near the corner of Beverly Boulevard and South Fairfax Avenue. In this area, still home to the historic Farmer's Market, Gilmore Field once stood at 7700 Beverly Boulevard, bounded by Beverly, South Fairfax, 3rd Street, and Gardner Street. Like Seal Stadium, it was long gone before I was doing my own traveling. It opened in 1939, and it was raised in 1958. Ritter has many insights about Gilmore Field in Lost Ballparks, as he does about all the ballparks. He writes about Bob Cobb, owner of the Hollywood Stars and the Brown Derby restaurants in Hollywood and Beverly Hills, and the inventor of the Cobb Salad. He notes that the playing field was extraordinarily close to the spectators. 
that movie stars frequently attended games, and that Bill Mazeroski and Dale Long, two of the greats of the Pittsburgh Pirates, played there. Much of the site is now home to CBS Television City. A historic marker is on the wall of Studio 46, where Gilmore Stadium's front entrance once was. Where shopping and dining dominates the area today, it was once a sporting mecca with Gilmore Field and the nearby Gilmore Stadium. Gilmore Stadium, a bit north and east of Gilmore Field, opened in 1934 and was demolished in 1952. It also for CBS Television City. Gilmore Stadium hosted professional and college football games, midget car races, a variety of other events, and briefly, the Hollywood stars while Gilmore Field was being finished. Gilmore was Earl Gilmore, son of Arthur F. Gilmore and president of A.F. Gilmore Oil. It's just nine miles by foot from the site of Gilmore Field to the site of Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. The walking route passes right through the campus of the University of Southern California, where so many great baseball players and teams competed at Bovard Field and then Dado Field, named in honor of USC's legendary baseball coach Rod Dado. Wrigley Field opened in 1925 on September 29 with a game between Los Angeles and San Francisco. For a time, the Los Angeles Angels shared Wrigley Field with the Hollywood Stars. Wrigley Field was home to one of the great minor league teams of all time, the 1956 Los Angeles Angels. The Angels won the Pacific Coast League pennant that year, led by Steve Bilko. While Mickey Mantle was winning the Triple Crown in the American League, Bilko was doing the same in the PCL to earn the second of his three straight league MVP awards. Like Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota, and Seal Stadium in San Francisco, Wrigley Field in Los Angeles was one of the few of Ritter's lost ballparks that made the jump from minor league to major league baseball. But it did so for the shortest time, just one season. When the American League expanded into Los Angeles for the 1961 season, the first home of the Major League Los Angeles Angels was Wrigley Field. In 1962, the Angels moved into Dodger Stadium and played there along with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And after four seasons at Dodger Stadium, got a new home of their own in Anaheim. Wrigley Field was the stage, as it were, for Home Run Derby, the legendary television show. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke there at the Los Angeles Freedom Rally in 1963, some three months before his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., the ballpark was used for filming scenes in the movies Meet John Doe, The Pride of the Yankees, Damn Yankees, The Twilight Zone episode The Mighty Casey, and a 1969 episode of the television series Mannix. The ballpark stood until 1969. From Cleveland to Los Angeles, we've covered lots of virtual ground, but we've only covered seven of Ritter's 22 lost ballparks. That still leaves 15 ballparks, but it still seems like a good time to take a break 
at the farthest western end of the trip. Up ahead are the Midwestern parks of Kansas City, St. Louis, and Cincinnati. Even though we're not time-restricted in any way, I'll spend less time on the eastern parks from Washington, D.C., north to Boston. The trip will conclude with virtual visits to Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Buffalo, New York, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've done an entire episode about Forbes Field, Pittsburgh's entry in lost ballparks. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I encourage you to do so before our next episode. Earlier, I mentioned Don Robertson. Don Robertson was a gifted journalist and novelist. He wrote for three major Cleveland newspapers, The News, The Press, and The Plain Dealer. He wrote 18 novels. He was an inspiration to Stephen King. King published and wrote the introduction to Robertson's novel, The Ideal Genuine Man. By far, my favorite Don Robertson novel is The Greatest Things Since Sliced Bread. The hero of the book is Morris Byrd III, and in a portion of the book, Byrd's long walk takes him past Cleveland's League Park. And if you are looking for a good story, I highly recommend The Greatest Thing Since Sliced Bread. There's much more to say about Don Robertson, but it will have to wait for another time. First, we need to finish our current journey, and that will happen in our next episode, when Where Have You Gone Lost Ballparks concludes. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company. <laughs>